if we're in resistance to anything we're in resistance in just it grows as Carl Jung said in that quote you know whatever we resist persists and grows so what we're doing is we're tapping into the emotion in order to reclaim an aspect of yourself as Carl Jung put it in order to reclaim part of ourselves that we may have rejected and therefore to become more whole and because we're becoming more whole we're then more in alignment with our true nature and therefore in alignment with mother nature so nature is not just you know, nice and soft it also has storms it also has thunderclouds it also has all of these other things welcome to care more be better a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain you'll learn how you can make a difference vote with your dollars and get involved today here's your host karina belizzi Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. As I alluded to in last week's interview with George Paxinos about his work of ecofiction, the new book titled A River Divided, we are diving into 2024 with a focus on the power of literature, art, and human connection. Today's discussion is a continuation of that thread. I'm thrilled to introduce you to an eco-artist, Alexander Inchbald. Alexander is the visionary behind the hashtag Masterpiece Movement, a profound journey to inspire creation and sync with Mother Nature. His experiences painting in some of the world's most breathtaking locales have led him into a revelation of sorts. He believes that we're not mere spectators in an uncontrollable universe, but rather active architects of our own destinies. His retreats span some of the world's most beautiful landscapes in the world from Kyoto to Wadi Rum and Jordan to a recent retreat in Belize. He hosts these transformational experiences with pioneers, misfits, and visionaries who explore the flow of wealth, health, creativity, and love. So what better way to welcome 2024 than to dive into this topic of transformation and purpose together and part through the power of art with Alexander Inchbald. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you so much, Bruno. It's a genuine pleasure to be here. Well, I can see in your background as we're hosting this via StreamYard, and for those of you who are watching this on YouTube, you get to see this breathtaking expanse behind Alexander as he's painting these mountains. Tell us where you are in this. Yeah, so this is the longest glacier in Europe. It's called the Aletsch Glacier, and it's 22 kilometers long, which in miles is probably around 15, 16 miles long. It goes all the way from up here. If you're watching on the video, on the painting, you can see there are actually three small mountains up there. One's called the Eiger, and we know the Eiger because of the north face of the Eiger, this kind of wall of rock, which is uh, legendary and is uh, a place where many climbers go. The next one is the Jungfrau. We kind of know the Jungfrau because it's the top of Europe and Honor Majesty's Secret Service, the Bond film was shot there. And then the third one is the Munch, which we know a little bit, or the Monk, which we know a little bit less about. And this glacier goes all the way down from these three mountains all the way to the bottom. And the place I'm standing is, is kind of quite famous if you live in this region. And I went up there, it's about a two hours drive from where I'm sitting right now, two and a half hours drive. And you go up there, you take a cable car up, and then you end up standing here looking out over, and they call it the Elech Arena because it really is an arena. And even though this photo, which was taken by an incredible Serbian artist, doesn't really 
it looks incredible, right? But it doesn't actually fully do justice to the awesomeness because you only see what you can see in the photo, but actually it goes all the way up this way and all the way down this way. But for me, what's really interesting about this is that this glacier is melting, like all glaciers in the Alps. And the Alps is one of the places where glaciers are melting the fastest. And it's something like a mile of this glacier has disappeared. And they predict by the end of the century that the entire 15, 16 miles of this glacier will have gone. And if that happens, <laughs> Europe's in, in a bit of trouble because this is the water tank of Europe and this is where all the water is stored. And we don't fully understand the correlation between water held in frozen glasses and the climate, but we know there's a correlation. And predictions are that the whole place turns to desert, you know, the whole of Europe turns to desert. I think that's the worst case scenario. Somebody I'm sure that you know of, Jacques Cousteau, he has actually said about the glaciers of the world, and in this particular case he was speaking of Antarctica, he said, why would you destroy the refrigerator of Earth? And in a way, that is a helpful way to look at it, right? Because this is part of what keeps Earth habitable. This cool, it reflects the light, which means we don't get as hot. And so not only do you have the water issues of this fresh water then ending up in our waters, diluting our oceans and things along those lines. So reducing the salinity of our ocean waters, meaning that we also change how it supports life, but also just you're talking rampant floods, more water and circulations, more severe storms, which we've seen here in California. And we say these century now storms are coming once a decade, potentially even be coming to a space where they are annual seasons. And so this is something that we all need to be concerned about. I understand that you have done work specifically in SDGs for the EU and things along those lines. So this has also been a professional <laughs> workload for you to defend the environment and to educate around these things. Can you talk about your experience in that arena? And then I'd like to dive into your art more. Sure. So before I really moved into what I'm doing now, my background was in marketing and communications. And, you know, I worked for big agencies in the UK and then I moved to Switzerland. And for me, the highlight of my career in marketing and communications was working on the sustainable development goals. And I got to work with some pretty amazing individuals and pretty amazing organizations and big organizations, you know, the World Health Organization, United Nations, Red Cross, UNICEF. And then some smaller kind of more innovative Bill Gates and Melinda, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation funded organizations. And I got to work on some big campaigns and, and I loved it. And then I started to see the impact and the influence. And sadly, the influence was not what I hoped. And I realized that I really, really is two things. One is I was using the wrong tool. So because communications is run out of the communications department, and it's really that the uh, the CEO or the director general who's running the ship. And the second realization, so the first one was what's the tool that I was using was not the solution. The second realization was that the real problem was the climate inside the organization, the culture inside the organization. And as I dive deeper into that, what I've begun to realize is it was the mindset within these organizations. Initially, I thought it was the structure, like the process kind of bureaucratic driven structure. And we have to remember that these organizations were created, at least the big ones were created after the Second World War as a reaction to what had happened in the Second World War. So it's not the fault of the organizations, but the organizations were designed for a specific purpose. And that purpose was to create peace, 
not to solve the climate crisis. And then you look at some of these new innovative organizations, and even though they are new in their design and their business model is, is incredibly innovative, what they started to do was attract the same people into them. And even if you have an innovative product and an innovative vision, what we ended up seeing was that the culture ended up reverting to type. It's not saying that these organizations are wrong. Everything that people are doing is contributing in their own way to something. But what I realized is that until we actually start to change the climate inside the organization, and therefore the mindset inside each of us, we will not actually have the influence that we really want to have in the world outside. And so I moved away from that world because I realized that actually I could contribute something more. And what I realized I could contribute was what I was seeing while I was painting in the mountains. And what you paint in the mountains is simply beautiful. And I have to say, what I will now call some of my favorite works of landscape art. I mean, frankly, I've never seen something quite like what you do, especially when you paint in monochrome, as with the white paintings that you've created, where you really just rely on these very minimal shifts in tone, but you reveal the texture and and the mood that you might be seeing in that particular day with the particular weather that you're experiencing out there in the wilds. So I want to first hear as we talk about your art, about this revelation that is described in your bio. But what exactly happened? What did you learn from painting in these beautiful mountains? You know, it took me a long time to be able to share this because I didn't know how to explain it in a way that would make sense. But, you know, two quotes come to mind. One is Carl Jung, the psychologist, Swiss psychologist who lived in Zurich, which is a couple of hours from here. And he said, what we resist persists and grows. And the other is something that Gandhi said. And Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world. And not talk about the change, not think about the change, not act on the change, actually be the change you want to see in the world. So I'm going to try and link these two quotes by telling a little story. And I'm going to take you up to the mountains. Right. So here you've got behind me, for those of you watching, you've got the Lech Glacier. But I'm actually going to take you the other side of the valley in Switzerland. I'm going to take you into France, actually, and then across the border into Italy. So here I am now standing at 3,000 meters, or above 3,000 meters, which is around about 10,000 feet. So it's pretty high, and it's the 2nd of August, and it's about five, six years ago. And I'm standing at a place called Punta Helbrenner, and right in front of me is Mont Blanc, the tallest mountain in Western Europe, except I can't see it. <laughs> so here I am, I'm standing on this mountain, there's clouds all around me, and it's blowing a storm. And when I say it's blowing a storm, a storm at 10,000 feet is a pretty big storm. So it's second August, right? But it's blowing snow horizontally into my face. And I've got sunglasses on to protect my eyes. But what I realize is that the snow is so moist, so humid, that the lenses of the glasses are steaming up. So I have to take the glasses off. So now I'm getting stung by this, literally they're like pellets flying into my and it takes me an hour, literally, just to tie the canvas to the railing. <laughs> you know, I think, what on earth is this guy doing on a mountain trying to paint this landscape when he can't see it? Well, it was actually the end of a three-day painting expedition that I'd gone on with a friend. And we painted the two previous days in other places, but the clouds had been low. And the first day, I kind of got a painting out. The second day, totally got frozen out, literally the painting froze and it snowed and couldn't see the mountain, had to give up. And here we are on the third day, the final day. I'm like, we are painting today. This is, this is the highlight and we're painting. 
And but I sat there. I was like, well, what do I do? I can't see the painting. I, I can't see anything to paint. I can't see anything. It's literally a whiteout. My friend says to me, paint the wind. What do you mean, paint the wind? I can't see the wind. How do you paint the wind? And she said, no, really, paint the wind. I, I got the canvas, right? And I grab a palette and I've got a painting, I have a big painting, and I cover it in white paint, different shades of white paint, as you've just kind of described. And I, I grab the side of the canvas and I kneel down and I feel into the wind. And something really strange happens. It's like I hear the voice of the wind and the wind goes, nobody likes me, nobody sees me, I'm all alone and I'm cold. But I'm more powerful than that mountain you can't see. And I'm more powerful than the clouds you can see, because I can blow the clouds away and reveal the mountain to you. What is this? So I start painting, right? And as I start to paint, this is the first time this happens in three days, the clouds start to lift. First on one side of the mountain, then on the other side. And I paint for five hours. And during those five hours, I'm kind of darting around the canvas in order to paint it because different parts of the mountain are revealing themselves. There's like a jigsaw puzzle and I'm trying to connect all these parts of the jigsaw puzzle together. And then right at the end, I stop and I'm like, it's done. And you can see it's like, it's, it's, it's windblown canvas, totally windblown. And right at the end, I stop. And 10 minutes later, the wind stops and the clouds lift entirely. And I'm like, how does this happen? And it's taken me years to be able to, I can tell the story, but years to try and really understand what I think is happening from a, a scientific perspective, but also kind of a metaphysical perspective, if that makes sense. So it sounds to me like you were communing with nature in a way that you'd never been able to before. It's exactly that. Yeah. And it led me to conclude that we're not separate from it. That's just a delusion of the mind that the mind thinks that somehow we're separate from this thing outside of us. But if we go back 40,000 years, we didn't have a prefrontal cortex. We weren't consciously aware that we were separate from nature. We were no more consciously aware than a mountain is a mountain, or a tree is a tree, or a, a lion is a lion. We have a term for this in archaeology, actually. I studied archaeology and, and did digs in France and Central California. And the term is you had behaviorally modern humans coming out around thirty to 40,000 years ago, but before that, anatomically modern humans, because there's no physical difference in humanity from about 100,000 years ago to about 40,000 years ago. There's no difference to present, really. However, there was a behavioral shift. And so what you speak of, like this sense of self-awareness and putting us at the center of everything doesn't appear to have happened before. And how that occurred is a complete mystery, right? And so I think one of the things that we've talked about a few times on this show is alluding to the same sort of moment that you experienced. Like Anne-Therese Gennari commented in her interview, she's known as the climate optimist, that when she goes out onto a grassy meadow or into nature or into the forest, and she just sits down in it, and it's like she's getting downloads from somewhere else. Like not from within, but from external. And that these are when she has her most profound realizations about the way the world and life and her experience situates within the whole thing. And 
I think that we touch on this when we talk about meditation, but there's this need to quiet the mind. And we have a really hard time doing that. I mean, there are people who develop entire courses on transcendental meditation and what it takes. And for me, what it takes is probably a moment like yours, being thrust into a moment of uncomfortability because you were incredibly uncomfortable. And in my case, it started with trail running. I didn't have a love of running. But when I got out there into the woods and I could just focus on one foot fall after the other and you get this kind of rhythm with it and maybe some pain and you're climbing the mountain and there's no device connected to me. I'm not sitting there on my iPod or anything like that. I'm not listening to music. I'm just listening to nature. I'm hearing the birds and I get into this space of, well, almost like other. I'm not in self anymore. I'm a speck on the planet. (laughs) And suddenly I will feel that that power and that connection almost as if you can hear a voice like you describe like what the wind was telling you but for me it's not quite like that it's like a message being whispered into my ear into my being it's just an awareness i think many of us seek to find that in our daily lives in a variety of ways either by sitting quietly for a half hour here or there or by painting a picture or by going on a walk into the woods but so much of the time, I think we remain connected now to our devices, to our headphones. We've got to listen to music while we're doing something. We've got to have the headphones on while we're doing that. And so we have a difficult time just getting to a space where we can be as part of it. So I think that this conversation is the one that we should be having as we talk about the power of art, as it can connect us to things and to one another, but also something that came out in our pre-interview call when you talked about how this realization kind of made you take a departure from what is Newtonian physics of perhaps cause and effect up and down and all of that to explain reality differently from this realization, and which I think comes into your retreats, I would imagine, and everything else you do. So you talk for a moment about that. Yeah, well, I'm no scientist, you know, I'm an artist, but when I read science, they say that 99.999999% of everything is energy. And it's only the quarks and photons inside the atom spinning at very, very high velocity that creates the illusion of matter. So for those of you watching, I'm holding a pen. And to hold the pen, there is force moving against my fingers in order for me to be able to hold this. But actually, 99.99999% of what is inside the pen is energy, and 99.99% of what is inside my finger is energy, and the same in the air around it. So if that's true, then from a metaphysical perspective, everything is energy, and we're just putting out energy and receiving energy. And I was listening to your to one of your interviews with Paul Hawkin in the introduction to it, and you were talking about the science, and you were saying, we don't fully understand the connection between a forest and the climate. Well, I would say we don't fully understand the connection between a human and nature. But what we do know, because we've experienced it, is when we align ourselves, as Paul was talking about in that same interview in Regeneration, when we align ourselves with our true nature, we have to be in connection with Mother Nature, because our true nature is a part of Mother Nature. So that, to me, has to be the start point. It has to be about how do we actually disconnect from our devices, 
connect to our true nature, which is an aspect of Mother Nature. And the journey into that, I mean, I go up and stand on a mountaintop. Not everyone has to do that. And we don't necessarily take people up the top of mountains and then put a canvas in front of them and get a wind blowing at 60, 70 kilometers an hour or 50 miles an hour in order for them to have the experience. We do it in a different way. Sometimes we do put paintbrushes in people's hands, but we tend to do it in a slightly different way in order for them to connect to their true nature. I mean, when we first connected, that was my assumption. I assumed that you put the canvas at the center somehow of what you would work to do with those that would attend these retreats. And it makes sense to me, given your experience and what you've had to share with us thus far, that that wouldn't be the central piece. So when you do use art as a part of these powerful connections, how do you use it and what do you find that people gain from it? We do use art. We did a retreat in the Swiss Alps, not a million miles from here. And the first piece I got people to do was just to paint something that they saw with watercolors and just to feel into what they saw and to paint it as beautifully as they could. In other words, to go more into the soft, the delicate side of things, the connection with Mother Nature, which can be powerful, but can also be incredibly soft and kind of more feminine, perhaps, in nature. We also use it in a very different way. And there is an aspect of ourselves that most of us have neglected. So when we talk about connecting to Mother Nature, it feels very soft and warm and lovely and delicate and very feminine and very kind of being held by something. But there's also another aspect of us, and that's the the masculine side, the kind of the warrior, if you like, the samurai, the sorcerer, the alchemist, and very, very different energy. And most of us have rejected that. So a lot of us who've gone on this journey and gone on the journey of reconnecting to who we are, we meditate, mindfulness, we go on retreats, we do all of those things. And then we come up with an idea and we're like, oh, I have to bring this idea into the world. But what we've done in the process of doing that is we've often rejected the one thing that we need in order to bring it out into the world. So we also use art in a very different way, actually to tap into that part of ourselves, which is the power, the real power within us, which is connected to Mother Nature. So if you look above me in this picture, for those of you who are here, you'll see there's some dark storm clouds here. And these dark storm clouds actually preceded a massive storm. And there's a video of this. The video of this painting is called The Love Economy. You can, I think you can probably Google it, Love Economy in my name. You'll find it on Vimeo. Literally, this whole storm comes in, and there's a point at which the whole image shifts. Two jets fly across the sky. I won't tell you more than that, but the whole thing shifts. And then the storm comes in, and the whole thing changes. And so there is a part of us which is the storm. And when we can channel that storm in a way that is conscious rather than unconscious, actually we start to see that we are now being the change in the world as opposed to just willing the change. So it's not enough for me just to you know, sit on a mountaintop and say, oh, that, I think we've gone beyond that. It's actually how do we take action in the world outside? So what do we do? We put an oil stick in somebody's hand and an oil stick is like a pen, but it's actually quite fat. And therefore you can grab it in multiple different ways. And you're watching and you see I'm grabbing it with my fist and I'm now using a movement downwards as you would like use a hammer or, or an axe. And what you're doing is you're expressing an emotion. And if you go back to some of the kind of master artists, you know, Vincent van Gogh was probably the first person to really do this in his you know, post 
Impressionist paintings, he said it wasn't about what you saw, it was about what you felt. And so in that sense, everything is a self-portrait. And what we have is we have emotions attached to experiences. And if those experiences are traumatic experiences, where we've rejected part of the world and we're like, eh, I'm reacting to that, then we're in resistance to it. And if we're in resistance to anything, we're in resistance in just it grows, as Carl Jung said in that quote, you know, whatever we resist, persists and grows. So what we're doing is we're tapping into the emotion in order to reclaim an aspect of yourself, as Carl Jung put it, in order to reclaim part of ourselves that we may have rejected and therefore to become more whole. And because we're becoming more whole, we're then more in alignment with our true nature and therefore in alignment with Mother Nature. So nature is not just you know, nice and soft. It also has storms. It also has thunderclouds. It also has all of these other things. So as you talk about this, Alexander, and your work, I'm reminded of a couple of things that I think are we kind of need to talk about and invite in. One of which is this perspective today that it's almost like people aren't allowed to express anger. And often you'll see women who come from minority groups saying it was not okay for a Black woman to be mad, as an example. And I think when you're talking about these retreats, there is a moment where people are allowed to be in whatever emotion and whatever pain and whatever expression that they need to be, and that there's a space for that. I feel the sense that we need that as a species. Like we need to be able to sing and dance around a fire with a drum or scream into the void or whatever to express the feeling that we've been trapped in. Or as you've said with Carl Jung's quote, which I'll paraphrase is, it's like it gets stuck inside and festers. So, so it's like you say it grows, but it's almost like it becomes the defining trait of negativity in a way. It's always there. So it, it's like a cancer, it just grows. And if I came into this call, into this conversation, and I just received some bad news, you would feel that. You would pick that up. You would intuitively feel, oh, Alexander's slightly off. In other words, you can't be truly happy if you're trying to avoid sadness. You can't be truly in creation if you can't destroy. You can't be truly peaceful unless you can also be angry. The distinction here is to be consciously angry rather than unconsciously angry. Because so much of the time we're reacting to something. And we're reacting unconsciously to something that's happened. So I could react to the wind, and I've done it. The first painting where I had this experience, I was down in Provence, and I was so angry with the wind. I was literally, I was shouting at the wind for three hours because the canvas was banging into the paintbrush. <laughs> so I had no control. I was so angry that I didn't have control, and I gave up. And I had to come back the following day. And this was when I had the realization. I sat down and I, like I was connecting to the landscape. And as I stood up, what I realized is the only thing that was resisting the wind was this dumb Englishman standing in front of a lavender field. Everything else, Karina, the tree was blowing with the wind, the lavender was blowing with the wind, even the canvas was blowing with the wind. But the only thing that was not blowing with the wind was this rigid Englishman trying to create a painting in nature. And at that point, I grabbed the side of the canvas and I used a sponge, you know, these ocean sponges you get. 
and I loaded up the pallet with paint. And I'd never done this before. And I started blowing with the wind. And in 10 minutes, the whole painting transformed. So rather than fight the wind, it was like the wind was blowing onto the canvas, if that makes sense. Very, very different way of creating. The wind became part of the process in that sense. I think you mentioned this in our initial conversation, where in the picture that's depicted behind you, there's like actually rocks tethering the canvas down because you have to weight it or a gust of wind will just blow the canvas onto you or off <laughs> into the void itself, right? Like, So it's like you have these collaborators as a part of your art that are a part of nature. The fact that the wind may have an effect on how quickly the oil dries or on how your brush takes to the canvas, I think also becomes part of the art too. And I don't know if that's something you could define by just looking at the brush strokes, but the experience that the person that reviews it, that is sitting there admiring your art, I would imagine touches on that as well. But I think that this is all kind of coming into this conversation about the power of our connection with nature being greater than ourselves as a standalone because we aren't ever truly alone. And we have this idea that has essentially been pushed on us through society and years of upbringing and generations that we are individuals that are separate, that there are still these remnants of cultures of past where they didn't have a word for I, only we. So if we know that, if we know that this isn't how it has to be, then how do we get back to this space where there is no such thing as alone and therefore there's no such thing as loneliness where we can be satisfied with our lives? Great question. And I think you're right. I often ask myself, who is creating the painting? Who's really creating the painting? I used to say I was partnering with Mother Nature. You know, the, the blizzard would infuse itself into the painting. The wind would infuse itself into the painting. But who's really creating? If you look at every single master since the beginning of time, who is really creating? Is it the ego? Or is it there's something greater in us, whatever we call that? I'm not interested in the label. And that, in my experience, is connected to all of it, whatever we call it, Mother Nature, Universe, Energy. Frankly, it doesn't matter. It's another label. How do we do that? Well, my observation, my research has led me to conclude that there's only one thing in nature that is not always in harmony with nature, and that's the human mind. It's the only thing that I've observed, you know, everything else. Look at this landscape behind me. Everything there is in harmony with nature. Even the canvas is moving in harmony with nature. Even if it's tied down, it's still in harmony. You know, the rocks may be there, but it's still moving very slightly. So the only thing that can actually move us out of harmony with who we are, who we were born to be, is the human mind. So then the question is, okay, what do we do? Do we destroy the human mind? No. Like without the mind, we wouldn't be able to position ourselves in time and space. We wouldn't be able to know that I was supposed to be here on this call at this moment. Nothing would happen. We'd never meet up. We'd never eat. We'd never do all of these things. So the human mind has a purpose. But as Albert Einstein said, if the intellect is a faithful servant and the intuition is the sacred gift, what we've ended up doing is we've started making the servant the master. And so if the mind becomes the master, then we're suppressing our connection to what I call the artist inside us, which is in connection with all of it. So paradoxically, how do we actually change that? Well, this comes into Carl Jung's work. 
around the shadow. So he talked about the shadow, the aspect of ourselves that we've suppressed or rejected. And a lot of great coaches out there um, work on affirmations, which is going into the positive. But what we do actually is going into the shadow, going to the negative, because if we're connected to all of it and we've suppressed part of it, then that's the part we need to reclaim, in his words. One of my partners, a guy called Peter Koenig, who's looked at our relationship to money for 40 years, pioneered a process that he calls reclamation work, which is actually taking Carl Jung's work a bit further and saying, actually, how do you reclaim that aspect of yourself? And while he developed it in relationship to money, it can actually be used for everything. And so we, not only do we affirm something in the positive, but we also reclaim something in the negative. Right? So we're reclaiming an aspect of ourselves that we may have suppressed. And whatever we're claiming is something which we're in resistance to. So if everything in nature, go back to that story of me standing in front of the lavender fields, if everything in nature is in flow, and the only thing is this dumb Englishman standing there not in flow, then he's got to be the one in resistance to it. So what is he resisting in nature? And then we reclaim whatever that is. And that's really the work that we end up doing. It's very deep. It's very profound. It sounds simple. And it is actually on the face of it, but it goes pretty deep, pretty quickly. So I think people thus far, if they've been following along, might be getting a taste of what they would experience from one of your retreats. But I'd love for you to talk about the sorts of takeaways that they might expect if they were blessed enough to be able to go to Belize with you or into Switzerland or wherever your next retreat happens to be. What is that experience like? Let's take Belize. So we went there with one of my partners, Jack, Jack Matsola. He'd come through Masterpiece, and his Masterpiece was something called Deep Dive. And he's a dive instructor and scuba dive instructor. And so we went to Belize so we could dive. And we took a group there, and we spent the first couple of days diving. Actually, I didn't lie to say I dived. I arrived with COVID. (laughs) (laughs) What a bummer. So you did not get to experience the depth of the blue hole or the tropical diving that they enjoy there. No. So they go diving, right? I'm in bed. And then they come back and I run a session with them. Then the following day, they go out spearfishing, like really to be in harmony with nature. It's the end of a tropical storm. That was supposed to be how it was done with it, through a tropical storm. So they're out on the boat and the boat's kind of all over the place, lying in bed. Anyway, to answer your question, what do they end up with? I mean, people came there with some pretty deep stuff. One man, his son had committed suicide. Another, literally the first morning, he got there, his, his mother died. He knew she was sick, but didn't expect that to happen. He literally dived straight into that. Now, that's probably as deep as we go, right? Because the fear that is beyond all fears is death. And that's the greatest fear, it's the greatest resistance. Why? Because we're afraid we haven't fulfilled our potential in life. So we go all the way down to things like that. But we can also look at relationships, relationship to money, relationship to time, relationship to power, relationship to love vitality, intimacy, things like that. So what do people leave with? Well, these guys left, I mean, they were totally transformed. This guy whose son is no longer here, uh, realized actually the the gift in that, which which sounds strange, but somehow realized that his son wanted him to live, not stop living. The, The time that this other man took to just take in the fact that his mother was no longer present, gave him the space to be able to go back differently because he was having resistance in relationship to his family. So those are kind of pretty big changes. What most people leave with is a sense of peace. And it's not a momentary sense of peace. You know, when you go on a retreat and you come back and it's like, you know, it's a suntan effect. It it changes after two weeks. 
What's going on here is actually deeper than that. It's actually happening at a, a genetic level. I'm not a geneticist, but we know thanks to epigenetics that what happens in the world outside changes what goes on inside. So if we change our relationship to the world outside, then something will happen inside. It's a chemical shift going on in the body. You could say it's releasing the toxins. I think it's actually changing the DNA. And therefore, you go back as a different person, actually a, a different, more lighter, happier, more joyful, more peaceful, more you, more in touch, clearer about what you're here to do in the world, you know, what you're called to do, what your masterpiece is, what your mission is, what the next steps are, why you're here. So I think this is the perfect opportunity for us to talk about your podcast, Masterpiece, right? I would like for you to share how you conduct that show because, I mean, people here, they're listening to a show, a podcast about social impact and sustainability, regeneration. We're kind of touching on all of these things at once. But really, if you are to have the greatest impact creating your masterpiece life or creating the masterpiece artwork that you might seek to create. Really, what you're talking about is having that greater impact. And you seem to share the stories of people you've deeply connected with on this particular show. So what is the intention there? What are you working to do with that? So for me, it's interviews with people at any stage of their journey, from before the idea all the way through to creating their masterpiece. The intention is to inspire people that there's a masterpiece inside every single one of us. The word masterpiece is really interesting. Most of us think it's kind of more masculine thing, but actually it comes from a Dutch word, misterstuk, and it means to attain the level of mastery. So they ask the question, well, what is mastery? Well, mastery is, is being able to perform something with excellence. What is a piece? Something in harmony with the whole. So what is a masterpiece? Creating something through the act of mastery in harmony with the whole. So there are masterpieces in every single facet of human society, everything from cars to books to innovative, regenerative ecosystems to new foundations and platforms to new initiatives. So for me, anything that is created in harmony with the universe and is regenerative um, and is created from that inner space not from a I ought to, I must, but actually from an inner space that I'd love to do this can become a masterpiece. So I think that naturally leads to what would be one of my final questions, which is really how do you help people identify what that masterpiece is if they don't even know yet? Like, how do they capture that? Because I think part of what leads us to dissatisfaction, especially if people are in middle life and questioning their past and they may have had some trauma that they're working through. They may have, heck, like me, been blindsided by something like your best friend from college being murdered randomly out of nowhere. So each of us carries with us some of these experiences that can be negative and that can overshadow us and that can cause us to question literally everything about our lives, but without having direction with which to really feel confident. How do you help people on that part of the journey? Well, I go back to that piece you shared earlier about disconnecting. So there we are connecting to our headphones all the time, connecting to devices all the time. But it's not just the devices we're connecting to, we're connecting to our thoughts all the time. And our thoughts are then leading to our actions. And our actions are then creating a reality out there of all these things we ought to do or we must do. If you take somebody out of that location, you take them out of their doing what they ought to do, and you take them into that inner space, 
and you help them to understand why they're experiencing resistance out there, whether it's a marriage not quite working out or conflict at work or whatever it is, right? If you can help them to understand what that resistance is causing that resistance, and it's not outside, so normally we point the finger outside, we can understand what that is, and then we can shift our relationship to that, then we can start to hear, truly hear. So the mind then at that point goes silent, totally silent. And when the mind goes silent, we truly hear things. But most of us can't hear because we're out there dealing with that and dealing with that resistance. And so when we break that relationship for long enough, we start to hear. And what we've observed is that there are four things that stop us. Our relationship to power, hierarchies, people above us, below us, relationship to love, but thinking that love comes from outside us rather than inside us, relationship to money, so thinking that when I get enough money, I'll be able to do it, and our relationship to time, I have to do this now, rather than actually time is something that flows through us, kairos, rather than chronos. Chronos is watch time, kairos is experience time. And when we get into that state of experience time, which is a natural state of time, we're actually stepping outside of chronos, we're actually stepping outside of space and time, and then we hear. And it's inevitable that we hear, because there is a design which we're here to bring into the world. And that is our masterpiece, that's our level of mastery. So when we quieten ourselves enough, we will hear it. We actually go through a more structured process than that. So it's not as simple as, oh, okay, just quieten the mind. We actually focus on each of those areas. And then what we do is we help people to work out their mission. So once they work out what their mountaintop is, then we can work out the pathway up the mountain, which is the masterpiece. And the pathway may not be completely clear. It looks like you could go straight up, but you might take a roundabout route, as most of us do, in order to reach our mountaintop. And once we've got that, then we kind of know what the person is called to do. And then they'll refine that as they go up the mountain, because the pathway will take them in a certain way up the mountain. And so that the masterpiece itself, it's kind of interesting, is both the outcome, but also the journey. And it's the journey that's the most important. It's not actually what you achieve with it. It's about becoming more in harmony with who we are, our true nature, which of course is in harmony with Mother Nature. As I'm processing all of this, I find myself connecting to a lot of thought leaders who say, ultimately, you have to have clarity of vision. And the piece that they might get to is, okay, clearly define it, build your vision board, do all of these things. They're very tactical. There's a process. There's a physical, like perhaps writing or pasting and cutting like your ideas together and and being this brainstorm state potentially with a coach or someone helping you through it. But I don't know that they necessarily work to get you to a space of that quiet to that equanimity with all things that how do you create that clarity and that vision without first doing that? And I think that may be getting in the way of people achieving what they want to in their lives, either personally or professionally or mixture of the both. If it's something that they're working to achieve by putting more good into the world as I do with this podcast or by trying to sell something that they believe in. I mean, whatever it really is, they may have gone through the motions of following what the key business leaders might tell them to do to 
create the success of Steve Jobs or the Elon Musks of the world, but without ever really understanding the basics behind it. And so it feels to me like what you're talking about is helping people to get that clarity and to really be sure in their purpose, like they might be on the wrong track and not even know it. At least that's what I'm gleaning. And it makes me want to come to one of your retreats, not only because I want to enjoy the spectacle and the beauty of being somewhere like the Swiss Alps or in Belize diving with your partner. I'm a scuba diver too. That would be amazing. But because I think it's sometimes so hard to see the forest through the trees. I mean, these are common sayings that we have because it's a reality for so many. Yeah, I would totally endorse everything you've said there. And the secret is in that word brainstorm. Who wants to storm their brain? And when you really kind of deconstruct that idea and you really think about where do ideas come from, they don't actually come from the brain. There was a piece of research done with a rapper a few years ago. They were looking at which side of the brain lights up when you're creating versus repeating. So a rapper is really interesting, right? You can put him into an MRI scanner and he can repeat a song and he can create a song, right? It's from scratch. And they wanted to look at the comparison and see which side of the brains light up. And they actually demonstrated the myth of the idea that right is creative and left is logical. And actually researchers, any neurologist has known this apparently for decades. It's just that the media picked up on this idea, right? Left, right. Not true. Different sides of the brain lit up, light up with each one. What was really interesting about this research that they didn't expect is that what they discovered is that when he was creating in this MRI scanner, you know, you can't put an artist in there because the canvas doesn't fit and stuff. You can't put a poet in there because like, when he was creating, it was a he, they noticed there was a pause between the word coming out of the mouth and the brain lighting up. What? There was a pause between the word coming out of the mouth and the brain lighting up. Now, fraction of a second, right? But they were able to distinguish this. So the question they asked themselves is, where was the idea coming from? And the conclusion they came to, and this is in a scientific paper, is there was some, I quote, outside agency. So where does true creativity come from if it doesn't come from the brain? Because that to me is innovation. And that's where brainstorming comes in. You storm the brain in order to come up, you put pressure on the brain in order to come up with 5-10% change. But that's not where true creation comes from. True creation is linked to our intuition. And our intuition works when we go silent. And if you ask yourself this question, you'll discover, you'll go, when do your best ideas come to you? And I've asked this question of hundreds of people. When do your best ideas come to you, Karina? I think Mahali, I can never say his last name. He's, I think, Mahali, <laughs> just joking, but I can't pronounce it. He wrote this book called Flow about this meditative state that we get to when we're in the midst of something that doesn't require a lot of brain power, so to speak. For me, it's like, this is why people say things like, oh, my best ideas come to me when I'm washing my hair or something like that in the shower, right? For me, it's when I'm doing something that's kind of repetitive and like washing my horse or going for a jog. You have that kind of rhythm of the footfalls or even just doing something as mundane. When I couldn't sleep as a teenager, I had this giant jar of pennies and I had just dumped the whole jar of pennies on the floor and I decided to sort them by year and then pick my favorite one from each year. And it was just not requiring a lot of brain power. It was just something to tactically do with my hands 
while I was processing the fact that I couldn't sleep and trying not to dwell on it. And then I started to get these ideas of things that I wanted to do with my life. I'm like sitting here 16 years old, right? The things that were important to me just kind of crystallized and were made clear. And this was what caused me to wake up in the middle of the night was this unease with what does the future hold, right? And so that's probably also why I really enjoy art. I'm not an artist. I am nowhere near the abilities that you have in the creation of these beautiful landscapes. But I was even as a young child, someone that my mother could sit down in front of a blank piece of paper with some watercolors, and I would spend three hours creating my little masterpiece. And it would be flooded with color by the end with not a spare space and all color, but then with like one little black streak swimming through it. And I would say that that's the minnow in the ocean or something. Like that was the thing I was painting out of everything else that was just background. So for me, it's tactile. I need to be doing something with my body to get quiet, to get into a place of flow. Sitting still does not and has not ever been able to do that for me. Yeah. I hear you, Karina. I hear you. I've asked that question to hundreds of people all over the world, and nobody has ever said, sitting at my desk. Nobody has ever said, in the office. Nobody has ever said, in a brainstorming meeting. Nobody has ever said, when I'm supposed to be coming up with ideas. So our best ideas don't come to us when we're doing. Our best ideas come to us when we're being. And if you were to put an MRI scanner on a brain, what you would discover is actually the brainwaves shift. They shift from beta, state of doing, into alpha or theta. And theta, or even delta, which is deep meditation, deep sleep, that's the state we were born in. So we talk about, well, we're in it for the first two years of our life, then we go to theta for the next five years of our life to the age of seven, then alpha until the age of 12, and then beta for the age of 12 onwards. So we talk about the idea of getting into a state of flow based on Mihaly, CZY, yeah, right? I know, same guy, right? And CZY, something. <laughs> I'll put a link in show notes for sure. Somebody once said it to me, I was like, oh, wow, that, yeah, great. But I can't That's how you say it. Okay, I can't repeat it. <laughs> so we've understood from his work that we get into a state of flow. My work has led me to conclude we are a state of a flow and we get out of it. We're, our natural state is a state of flow which would go all the way back to what you said about the archaeologists at the beginning. We are a state of flow. That's our natural state. And for the majority of human history, in 160, 170,000 years, let's say 80% of human existence, we were in that state of flow. And then the prefrontal cortex came in, the mind started to develop. And then 10,000 years ago, we started to settle down and create crops and put ourselves very slightly above Mother Nature. In other words, we can sow crops and we can control things and we can domesticate animals and then we created cities 5,000 years ago. So for 90 to 95% of human history, even more than that, we were a state of flow and we're born a state of flow. <laughs> so, so this idea that we have to get into it somehow, actually we have to stop the things that we're doing that stop our natural state of flow. And that natural state is automatically in harmony with the universe. So if you then create anything from that state, anything, it's going to be in harmony. It's not going to be in resistance. And that's my wish for the world. Well, I could talk to you for hours. I really could. I just feel like we've covered so much territory here. I think my audience is going to want to learn more about you. 
I know I've had the opportunity to review your art at alexanderinchbald.com. I will, of course, include links in show notes. And I believe you also have links to how to connect with you about retreats there as well. Where else might people go to learn more? They can go to your podcast, which I'll also link. And of course, your website. Yeah. So there's a book called Masterpiece and all good booksellers. Just Google Masterpiece. You'll find it on Amazon, but you'll also find it in local bookstores. So that became a bestseller a few years ago. And it talks you through the process. So you can find out a little bit more there. We also run every month, but twice a month, we run sessions, complimentary sessions, one on purpose. So purpose for me is the key. It's like the, the key to unlock the inner. And purpose for me is not what you do. That's a masterpiece. Purpose is why you do it. And so we run a complimentary session on purpose every month. And we also run a, a session on money, prosperity every month, because as Peter Koenig says, that tends to be the one that stops us most, our relationship to money. You know, money in most conversations comes up in the first two to three minutes. And our relationship with money is embedded within us in the first two to three years of our life. That's pretty early. And therefore, it's an unconscious kind of projection in Italian's words onto money. And so we run sessions around money. So if you want to come out and experience a purpose session, you know, discover your purpose, come to that. If you want to understand how you can change your relationship to money, and that doesn't mean so what we see is two types of people. One who has got lots of money and is kind of stuck because they've got lots of money and they don't want to create a masterpiece because they're like, well, I like my lifestyle. And the other is actually not money flowing. So we get both of those audiences in. So that's another way of just going a little bit beyond just uh, observing it and actually starting to embody it. And that's really all the work is about it. I'm not interested in somebody understanding theoretically what I do. Um, that to me doesn't serve the world what best serves the whole what best serves the whole is experiencing it and us experiencing it all the time and then creating from there well i love that i will of course be sure to include links to where people can find all this valuable information with show notes and i'd love to join you on one of these purpose sessions because i always find i learn something new and gain more clarity when i participate in something like that even if you think you know what your purpose is a little bit more clarity and getting a little bit more crystallized on your ideas is always helpful. And sometimes you find that you didn't write your mission statement or your true purpose the way you should have, and it can send you on a new and more productive path. So I very much appreciate your time, your work, and everything you're doing to bring awareness to the need for people to unite specifically around protection of our natural world and the climate peril that we're all under. So thank you so much for all of that. Is there a closing thought that you'd like to leave our audience with? Thank you, Karina. First of all, for this conversation, it's amazing, amazing facilitation. And I love the work you're doing. I think the one thing I would say is you are nature. You, know, you are an aspect of nature. And the more that we get that, not just at a mental level, but the more that we experience that on a daily basis, we do end up regenerating. We are flow. We are nature. There is no separation between us and it. And it is that separation which is causing everything we see around us, including the climate challenge. Now, the good news and the optimistic piece that I really want to leave you with is that for me, that is the pressure that we need to operate. So if the brain upgraded 40,000 years ago and we got a prefrontal cortex, what if this pressure from all of these challenges outside of us was the pressure that we need 
for us to upgrade again, as Zach Bush puts it. What if that was really what it was? And therefore, we don't resist the change. We embrace the change. And in the process of embracing it, we don't just partner with Mother Nature, we become part of Mother Nature again. And therefore, everything we create from that place naturally is in flow and is naturally regenerative. And I think that's a beautiful note on which to close. It's its own way of helping everyone to awaken to this kind of next level that we can achieve. So I appreciate all of your work again. And thank you just so much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Same. Thank you so much for hosting it, Karina. To learn more about Alexander Inchbald, please visit my show notes. I will include direct links to everywhere you can find him, his book, Masterpiece, his podcast, also called Masterpiece. Now, for my complete and expanded blog, I invite you to visit caremorebebetter.com. On our website, we will include complete transcripts, links to every podcast that we discussed today, and even a connection, which Alexander Archibald just mentioned at the very close, to Dr. Zach Bush, who I had the pleasure of meeting at Expo West this last year. While you're there, I hope that you'll subscribe to our newsletter. Within its pages, you can find a link to sign up for our newsletter. And with that newsletter, I send out one email a week detailing that week's podcast, as well as provide you with a action-guided tool. It's called Five Steps to Unleash Your Inner Activist. Really, more than anything, it's a project management guide. It happens to have focused links on climate science and how you can learn more as well but really operates as something that you could use for almost any project you're looking to undertake in your life. If you enjoyed today's discussion, please subscribe and write us a review or give us a five-star rating on whatever podcast platform you happen to be finding us. On YouTube, that could be a subscribe, click that bell to always and give us a thumbs up, write a comment. All of that, again, helps more people reach this content. And I want to say one final thing. I appreciate every single one of you in the audience. I know sometimes these discussions can open your mind to new ideas. And that's really everything that this show is about. We invite you to care more about a specific issue, about yourself, about your environment, so that we can create a better world together. This is a community effort. We can care more. We can be better. We can dream of a better and brighter future. We can get to a space where we evolve into a higher self too. And with the support of people like Alexander Inchbald, I think we'll all get there sooner. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. 